Hi, my name is Andre Gonoella. Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. Uh, as many of you know, you've been following the war uh, in Israel-Gaza. Uh, you've certainly been following the war uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And I think one thing that we've all noticed has been the proliferation of misinformation, new information, the weaponization of information uh, throughout these conflicts in recent months and years. Uh, and today to talk about that, we have Peter Singer joining us. Uh, Peter has been named by the Smithsonian as one of the nation's 100 leading innovators uh, by Defense News as one of the 100 most influential people in defense issues. Uh, and has been listed in many other lists. Uh, he is also the co-founder and managing partner of Useful Fiction, an organization working at the intersection of strategic narrative, foresight, and change management, helping organizations to identify and better tell their key stories, uh, and has authored uh, many great articles uh, and many great books on many of these emerging threat issues uh, that sort of found, find themselves now uh, within conflict. So Peter, uh, thank you for joining me here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me and, and for that incredibly kind introduction. Sure thing. So again, you know, as I mentioned, we've been seeing a lot of social media uh, content, particularly around the weaponization of information uh, with the Israel-Gaza war. So Peter, I mean, what in general are we seeing with this social media coverage uh, and this sort of so-called sort of digital battlefield uh, around the Israel-Gaza war? So it's interesting. Um well over a decade back, uh, myself and uh, Emerson Brooking, uh, a researcher um, also looking at this topic, we were fascinated by how social media had started out being this place that you know was assumed um, just to be for uh, fun and games. Um, and if you thought it had an effect on the world, uh, you thought it had a positive effect, you know, go back to the Arab Spring and you have the New York Times talking about the democratization effect of social media. Um, and in fact, you know, it turned out to be something very different. Um, and so we started this project that ultimately uh, became a book called Like War. And it was basically about the idea that, as you put it, um, information, uh, particularly on social media, can be weaponized um, and weaponized in in the notion of I'm using it to try and have an effect. I'm using it to try and cause harm. I'm using it to try and win at a certain kind of battle. And you framed it that digital battlefield. And um, this is true whether it's uh, information that's true. It's true whether it's information that is um, deliberately false and spread disinformation. It's true if it's that thing in the middle, it's misinformation, it's um, knowing it, it's spread, it's false, but maybe it's not knowingly spread when it's false. And gosh, you know, we've seen it obviously enough everywhere from um, elections to the pandemic to Ukraine to uh, it's hit its um, high point uh, so far within this conflict, um, both on the awful events of the uh, attack uh, itself on October 7th to everything that's played out in the weeks that followed. 
And I mean, you know, there's so many different threads to pull. Um, the sheer scale of information um, that's out there uh, is like nothing before in history. And we can talk about, you know, the why of that. But we've also seen how the actions of each of the players have been um, deliberately, uh, in many cases, trying to drive forward that information side of the conflict. And of course, um, you and I and anyone else who's on social media has, is a target of it. But we've all um, become in certain ways ways participants because we're deciding which side to elevate through our own um uh you know posts and retweets uh and that's the essence of um like war is that uh one of the goals is to um both uh hit a target audience but turn that target audience into um a fellow combatant no for sure and you know you mentioned the like war and i want to dive into that a little bit later uh in this interview and of course you know a lot of the concepts we're going to be talking about aren't just pertinent to Israel-Gaza, pertinent to many other conflicts. But I think, you know, with Israel-Gaza, that conflict has been covered on social media significantly more than many other conflicts that I've been tracking in my 26 years on this planet Earth. And I'm, I'm sort of curious, you know, you know, I don't want to compare conflicts. I don't want to compare tragedies. I don't want to compare civilian casualties and just the the human cost of this all. But I mean, Peter, like, why has Israel Gaza captured the imagination of so many on social media, as opposed to the conflict in Ethiopia, Sudan, uh, the prior conflict in Sri Lanka, and, and many other areas in the world that have also seen significant uh, casualties, significant fighting? Uh, why has Israel Gaza been so focal, I guess, in social media and has caused many of us to be active participants on that digital battlefield, as you said, by elevating one side or the other. So there's a lot of different things um, going on there, um, and they align with, you know, larger lessons of um, why does something go viral or not, whether we're talking about something um, positive like Ice Bucket Challenge or something horrific like um, ISIS propaganda. Um, so, uh, one is it's, um, the idea if you've heard of, you know, memes is that there's something that's new, but they also build upon something that's, um, old, something that's familiar. And, um, unfortunately, uh, that, you know, this is a conflict that has been an enduring conflict. Uh, and so it's layering upon a level of awareness and care about it that goes back, you know, whether you want to say decades or centuries or millennia, you know, you choose. But basically, this is not a new conflict related to that. Um, it's a conflict uh, that um, so there's there's a built in awareness of it there. It's a conflict that for um, secondly, a variety of reasons people deeply care about on a personal level. Um, obviously, uh, bringing in the issues of religion or the like, um, and and also domestic politics. Uh, and so, you know, you could make that comparison to some of the other uh, conflicts that are out there. You know why? And, and look, you know, we pay more attention to this conflict than we do, and you know, as you put it, in Ethiopia or whatnot. Well, there's also when you think about the its role in our politics, um, the issues of religion, etc. So you've got that. Um, another issue is, um, the sheer number of, um, digital eyes and ears 
that are collecting information and blasting it out. And this is why, you know, even if you make the comparison to Ukraine, which was um, an incredibly, you know, covered war on social media, um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting uh, individual footage of firefights and the like, um, covered like um, no war had been previously, but even then, just the sheer um, geography and um, uh, population numbers matter here. So if you're making a comparison between um, Gaza and Ukraine, um, you know, we're talking about uh, a massive country and geographic scale. Um, I'm going to fail in my geography right now, but, you know, somewhere um, a, a little bit smaller than uh, what is it? Um, Montana, roughly versus Gaza. Uh, you know, it's 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 smaller than Rhode Island. Um, and so if you're looking and then the number of a population that's spread across that country and the military operations that were taking place um, in Ukraine, you know, you had a, you have a battlefield that's several thousand kilometers long. You've got multiple different Russian offenses um, versus in Gaza. It's all happening in a matter of just a couple of um, square kilometers that you've got, obviously, not hundreds, not thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people all gathered in that area. It's the same if we're talking about the events of October 7th. Um, they're taking place in a very small number of geographic areas as compared to all of Ukraine, right? Or all of Kyiv. We're talking about just a couple of areas. And then of course, um, each of, in, in these situations, um, you add in not just the number of kind of witnesses and victims, um, but different is the active participants are also recording and sharing and blasting out. And that's true whether we're talking about the attackers on October 7th to, um, you know, the IDF right now is recording and pushing out what it's doing. And that um, that leads to a fourth issue. So it's not just sort of the, the population and the geography and the sheer number of um, accounts and eyes and ears that are blasting um, that are orders of magnitude more. It's that both sides of the conflict are um, experienced and knowing participants in information warfare on social media. They've um, the the uh, um, they're not doing this out of happenstance. They're doing it because it's part of their strategy. Um, if you're talking about um, Hamas, you're talking about it. You know, it's the very goal of the attacks was to spread fear, to cause horror, to bring back uh, the Palestinian cause and disrupt um, the the negotiations. You know, they 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 wanted people to know about their atrocities, and in turn, um, the IDF. Um, they openly talk about uh, actually the what they called um, the prior Twitter war. This was over a decade back um, when they did a previous intervention into Gaza, um, and they didn't do a very good job of engaging in, in uh, information warfare. Um, and uh, they they talk about how they lost the narrative 
And they reorganized their military, um, created new responsibilities, new units around how to better tell their story on social media. This, these are reforms that took place more than a decade back. And so uh, you also now have uh, warring sides that consider the physical and the digital battlefield to be um, not separate, but wholly linked together. They don't think about one without thinking about the other. No, for sure. And I mean, you know, when we talk about setting that narrative, what have we seen in Israel, Gaza, but also Russia, Ukraine, uh, and other conflicts in terms of sort of narrative setting? I, I recall on October 7th, as I was sort of going through Twitter and Instagram, I saw very quickly, you know, how different narratives between the two sides were established as a result of that event. And you also see these sort of micro-narratives established uh, when you have a certain uh, event in the war. For example, uh, the bombing of the hospital uh, and how quickly narratives were set within hours of that event actually taking place. I mean, what have we seen in terms of that narrative setting? Oh, gosh, there's there's so much there that you're putting your finger on. Um, I think one aspect of... Um, understanding um narrative uh is you know why it is more effective than just you know raw numbers raw facts is um it tells a story and stories have certain elements to them that you see the warring sides um essentially you know trying to um seize control of seize control of the narrative so it's not the narrative overall it's um issues like you know the story is effective because it brings in emotion um when again when we looked at you know whether to go outside these wars whether you look at effective um digital marketing campaigns whether it's for elections or um for taylor swift um, what what's more likely to go viral? It's something that is um, provocative. And I don't mean provocative in terms of uh, showing skin. I mean, provocative in terms of it provokes an emotion um, because uh, emotions lead to action. Um, now, the emotions that you see the sides battling over um, are um, empathy uh, and anger um empathy who's the true victim um and anger i'm angry about what's happening and um uh unfortunately uh anger is actually the most powerful emotion um in the online world because um people when they see something uh that makes them angry they want to share it and then other people want to share that anger or they are angered by your anger and then they respond to that. Um, and so uh, you you see that that battle over empathy and this should make you angry. And the empathy side, um, and this relates to the notion of, um, of story, is you also story brings in um, characters. And um, so again, uh, the narrative battle is not just about the raw numbers of how many have been killed, wounded, taken hostage. It's about the who. Um, as an example, think about um, the importance of um, children, 
not just overall, but children in the narrative. Both sides um, highly emphasize that among the losses, they'll they'll hone in on children. Why? Because children are um, innocents, and it's it's um, you know when it's a baby killed, you you can't counter narrative it, right? You can't say, well, but they were a legitimate target, um, whether of my terrorist attack, whether of my airstrike, and so um, you see a battle uh, in that narrative of you know it's 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 about children and whose whose children matters, etc and trying to push forward that. Um, there's another aspect uh, of this that, again, you see, whether it's in Ukraine or you see um, in Gaza, um, it's uh, we want to provoke an action. And part of that action is we want you to choose a side. Um, uh, and very quickly, then that sends you down a certain pathway of what you argue for, uh, who you argue against, but also who your information sources are, and then um, what you believe to be the truth of the matter. And so the very same physical event, you can have completely different interpretations of it. Um, and obviously, you can see that whether we're talking about um, drone strikes in Ukraine, or you're talking about what happened on October 7th, or you're talking about um, the strike at the hospital and that that and then you know one of the things that's um those is as you put it um it's not just that uh very quickly uh, a narrative um is uh comes together but it proves sticky mostly by which side you're on once you once you decide even when you get other facts you'll discount them because you'll say they came from that other side. And that's where um, bluntly, uh, you know, media and um, some governments still flail at this. So let's take that example of um, the, the hospital uh, bombing. Um, you saw uh, traditional media in their effort to try and be the first to report push out multiple different they 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 very quickly had to correct themselves it's you know the number of headlines that like new york times putting on was like almost laughable um to their uh pu they're pulling information from sources that are obviously um biased and or untrustworthy so a great example um it wasn't on the hospital bombing but it was on um the wall street journal uh pushed out an article about um hezbollah's uh knowledge and participation in october 7th and what was interesting is that um the wall street journal's own reporters their experts in the topic area weren't retweeting out that article Kind of, you know, which was pretty evident that they weren't behind it, right? Because the article was, its sourcing was, um, I, I can't try to remember the exact language, but it was like two anonymous mid-level Hezbollah sources. And you're like, really? That's what we're going with here? Um, to the flip side, the timeliness, um, the hospital strike, um, uh, you know, I think it took place in November, correct? Um, Andre, do I have that correct? Or maybe around, um, around like late October, but around that sort of time period. Yeah, and um, you and I are talking on January 5th. Yesterday, January 4th, U.S. intelligence pushed out to media, I believe it was AP or Reuters, 
a series of kind of declassified reports about what they believe was going on at the hospital. Now, you and I could have an argument about whether we believe that to be true and is U.S. intelligence, do we trust them or not? My point, though, is January 4th, weeks later, even if it is true, the effect of that information releases, it, it's, 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 you know, it, it, it's a, almost irrelevant right now to the information warfare that's going on. So there's, you know, the, and again, that's the same thing, you know, that's a discussion about Gaza. We could have the same thing um, talking about um, U.S. presidential elections. You know, someone accuses you of X, media reports, it becomes sticky. And then, you know, two weeks later, if you come back with the facts, you know what? Too late. I mean, there's a. I used to do research on social media, and you know, there's a great concept that I was very passionate about called the political spectacle. It's a book written by Murray Edelman, and he talked about how the repetition of certain uh, truths, you know, within certain uh, microcosms of people, that just the repetition of that can mean that it becomes true to that certain audience. You know, when you're having a truth that's been sort of set in stone for a certain audience, and you have alternate truths come out perhaps like weeks later, it may be too late. I mean, uh, you know, whether it's just calling your opponent corrupt uh, repeatedly, you know, that can become an established truth, even if there's no veracity to that element. But uh, Peter, you know, there are so many strands in your answer that, you know, I really want to pull at. For example, when you talk about, you know, who's the victim sort of, you know, when I think about Ukraine, and sort of what goes viral. I remember, I think that first night of the Russian invasion, uh, President Zelensky put out a video uh, of him saying, you know, I'm still here in Kyiv, you know, we're all still here, we're running the country. And I feel like that was like one of the starting points of sort of cementing this imagery, the symbolism of uh, Zelensky as, you know, this tough as nails leader, that image that just sort of came up very spontaneously. Uh, and I mean, also, you know, another strand when you're talking about, you know, establishing the counter narratives, uh, I, I think something that's been sort of scary in a way has been when we're looking at the sheer amount of civilian casualties in Gaza, uh, particularly of these children. And you referenced this instance uh, in an article you recently wrote, but I think there was an image of a father holding a dead baby uh, and the dead baby's eyes looked quite glassy to an extent. I think rigor mortis had certainly set in. And it's just a horrifying image. But you start seeing a lot of people uh, on the more pro-Israeli side sharing, you know, social media uh, posts about, you know, how that's a doll or something. It, it wasn't a doll. It was a real baby. And then on the other side, you know, you have a lot of, you know, pro-Hamas uh, folks and folks who are sort of uh, on the other side of things who are saying that, uh, you know, the October 7th attacks, like, you know, there is you know, Israel fired on its own people, or, you know, this person is not telling the truth, or this hostage is not telling the truth. And you're seeing these counter narratives sort of take place. And, you know, I've seen this circling with Russia and Ukraine as well, but I'd love for you to sort of expand, you know, on efforts to establish counter narratives, you know, once uh, narratives, uh, you know, are set forth. And I'm not necessarily talking about whether, you know, the initial narratives are true or false, but just the establishment of that narrative to become truth. So let's let's go through what you brought up. Um, so first, you know, let's take that example of Zelensky in Ukraine, and then we'll get to the the Gaza side of it. 
you used an interesting word. You said, you know, Zelensky, um, you said spontaneously um, pushing out. No, the key to like war is, and the key to um, social media uh, is um, this interesting sort of strange phenomena that um, one of the other attributes of something going viral, of winning, um, is authenticity, the sense of being real. It really is you. However, um, it's always curated. It's always thought out. So it's the idea that that really is me with the selfie. But remember, you know, I'm the one who pulled out the phone. I'm the one that um, recorded it. I didn't like the lighting in that. I re-recorded it, right? Um, this is the brilliance of um, Taylor Swift, right? Where she's, it's her, it really is her sharing. She lets us in her world. But Taylor's doing that knowingly, right? And it's the same phenomena with Zelensky and Donald Trump and everyone else um, online is that it's it's authentic, but it, it's purposeful, it's strategic. Um, and so for Zelensky, um, appearing on social media those selfies with the grainy footage was actually better than the the uh putin uh highly curated at the end of a long table um it was Zelensky speaking smartly strategically to multiple audiences his own public i'm here i'm with you i'm experiencing the same things but he was also speaking to us um, I'm in the thick of it. You're not. And again, it's with a goal. Give me the aid that we need. Zelensky had basically figured out that the best way to keep Ukraine in the fight was to show to the West that he was still in the fight. And so and that's the same thing, that notion of authenticity. It really is me. Um, you know, again, the the footage um, that's uh, coming out of whether it's an October 7th, whether it's um, the strikes in Gaza, it's um, the ones that resonate are not the battlefield maps, are not the um, numeric charts. It's the the grainy handheld video. Um, and, and so that matters. Um, secondly, you talked about um, this, this, you know, we talked about the, the notion of uh, children, character, children, empathy. Um, and then that's where you see these, you know, bluntly kind of awful, disgusting narrative battle um, over what is real or what is um, fake. Um, and, and I'll just quote from this article to, to be um, uh, clear about it. He said, we um, quote, key to the, this is Emerson Brookings and myself, key to the narrative are both sides emphasizing the loss of children whose innocence cannot seemingly be debated and yet is relentless the result is a cycle of endlessly dueling tragedy beyond a certain point as attitudes become fixed it matters less and less whether individual tragedies are actually true the first month of the israel hamas war witnessed claims of real child casualties via ai generated images Accusations of fake child casualties via old decontextualized photos of children in Halloween costumes and most perversely accusations of fake child casualties via photos of real dead children 
I mean, this, this, and, and again, this sounds, it, it, it's so horrific in so many different ways, but the overall, you know, kind of conclusion that we can draw from it that we later talk about is just the sheer volume of misinformation and deliberate disinformation is, um, overwhelming not just to the the regular viewer it's now overwhelming to experts and it's gotten even more difficult when we um you know related but separate conversation talk about what's played out to twitter slash x since elon musk is is taken over where you know kind of all the rules and and norms have been lost there um so yeah i I hope that kind of covers what you were asking about it it's obviously a really tough topic no it's definitely a very tough topic and it's a very scary topic as well i mean uh, and i think when i was sort of talking about spontaneity not necessarily about you know like oh zelensky spontaneously tweeted this but like how spontaneously at least to the audience that narrative i guess took hold like i think how quickly yeah yeah and and again it wasn't knock you it's such a it's interesting right because because it even if it i'm not saying every time moment he thought about it hours or weeks before there is that spontaneous of taking it out and you know showing myself um at dinner uh and, and i'm not just talking about me Zelensky did that at a dinner with um uh ukrainian soldiers yeah um and so it is spontaneous but it is also there it's always knowing right you you are both um you're you're an active participant you're not just merely a witness and that's where that that notion of um the goal of information warfare the goal of like war is to take you that target audience that I'm trying to reach and have you then want to tweet it out, want to comment on it, want to share it. And or if you're um, an internet troll or you're Hamas, I may even want you, I don't think you're going to agree with me, but I want you to get angry about it. And then you serve my purpose by sharing it out. No, exactly. And I I think maybe spontaneous is the wrong word, but like rapid or instantaneous. Because again, with the Zelensky video, before that video came out, before the day of the invasion, I think, you know, there were rumors or like questions like, oh, will Zelensky flee Ukraine, you know, once Russia invades? I think a lot of people, you know, thought of him as the former comedian turned president, didn't really you know, think of him as his toughest nails guy, but that video comes out and it's like, you know, I am staying in Ukraine. And suddenly the whole narrative almost instantaneously changes. And you're looking at this grizzled uh, president who comes in with the khakis and the green t-shirt to Congress. And it just feels like that narrative took shape very quickly, like almost instantaneously. And, you know, you're seeing the same thing uh, in Israel, Gaza. You've seen it plentiful times in Russia and Ukraine. And I think that's what I was trying to get at. But, you know, another aspect you sort of talked about. Can I jump on that? Though I think it's really interesting what you raised. So, you know, it's a couple of things. It's it's one, um, you know, in in the online world and therefore everything that's shaped by it today, whether it's marketing or politics, is, you know, it's that notion of virality. And virality is both about um, reaching wide, but it's also about rapid, rapid, right? Um, and as a result, um, just as you put, you know, these, these, this information, but also the, the narrative and the attitudes that come from it, um, lock, they, they hit quickly, but then there's that second part that we talked about, they lock in, right? It's once you've become part of 
you know, once you sort of picked your side, picked your point of view, picked the facts of it, um, you, you're locked in, right? And um, that now related to Zelensky, you know, really interesting things that you bring up. I mean, before the war, um, he was obviously not a, 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 a well-known internationally, yeah. but in Ukraine, even though he's well-known, um, his uh, he and his party were polling at 23% levels of popularity. It was basically the most popular of a wide set of deeply unpopular figures. And um, one of the things that's believed is that that was part of why Putin thought this was going to be an easy intervention, that Ukraine was so divided that it um, it just needed to, the regime just needed to be toppled. Um, Zelensky, it's not just you and I, within a week in Ukraine, he was at 90% levels of popularity. So rapid swing, however you, you, you know, care about it. But then you had that other part, again, the audience of us, um, and you hit it really well, you know, there was this belief and largely shaped by what we had just taken place in um, Afghanistan, that, you know, the leaders are just going to flee the country and they're probably going to take some of the money with them. And that's going to be the same thing that happens in, in Ukraine. And no, you know, he pushes out this narrative um, no, I'm here. But you remember, it's not just the selfies. Um, he's making um, quippy, uh, you know, things he's basically saying, like, you know, don't send me helicopters to evacuate me, send me ammunition. Yeah. Um, he's the Italians are debating whether to give aid or not. And um, he's uh, saying things like, I'd like to be part of the conversation, but I'm, you know, we're, we're busy being hit by missiles. It kind of has a little bit of like, it's, it's, it's shaming, but also humor woven in. And that hits that last part um, that, you know, again, in, in marketing and politics and in online warfare, it's not just about your message. It's about the other. It's a comparison, right? So for Zelensky, you know, it's it's everything from, youthful versus elderly Putin to, you know, wearing the, the, now the look, right. The, the military not, not in a suit. Um, it, it's deliberate, right. It's smart. Um, and that's the same phenomenon. You know, we can have a very similar discussion almost about every single conflict today has certain elements of that. No, for sure. And I mean, uh, you know, you talk about that type of branding. And I feel like we're observing this also with like the Houthis uh, from Yemen, you know, and these attacks that they've been making on commercial ships, uh, because you've seen a lot of social media proliferate around like how the Houthis equals Yemen, even though the Yemeni government is fighting the Houthis right now. And the Houthis, you know, they're recognized as a terrorist group in the United States. But suddenly you're seeing these narratives take shape about like, oh, how the Houthis are resistance fighters trying to help their friends uh, in the Palestinian territories and in Gaza. And, you know, I think that's, you know, going to be an interesting thing to follow, you know, in terms of, you know, how the social media sort of starts to frame them and brand them. But I want to sort of draw on the anger element that you- But can, uh, I, can I add one thing to that? I mean, yeah. you've got first, which, you know, I think it really depends on um, who the target audience is, right? So, you know, if you are a um, Middle East analyst, that narrative doesn't work on you because you already know all the history and the like. If you are um, Joe Schmo, who can't find Yemen on a map, um, it makes perfect sense. But the, you know, the other part to bring in there is that um, like everyone else, 
they are knowing actors. So even um, you may have seen, you know, there was um, the seizure of one of the vessels and it's they brought their own cameras with them where you can watch them coming in on the helicopter landing. I mean, so and, and so the fact that as part of their plan, the plan was not just we're going to go seize uh, I think it was a tanker. It may have been a freighter, but it was, you know, a large, it wasn't just, we're going to go seize this. We've got to get together, you know, a squad of men. This is the weapons. We've got to get a helicopter. We got to train, get intelligence on where to land. It was, okay, who's going to have the camera and who's going to be blasting out the video? And oh, by the way, hey guys, don't say or do anything that's not going to look good for us. Like, they, I mean, it's this knowing effort. And that's the same phenomena if you're talking about, um, uh, you know, Ukrainian units right now with drone strikes to the horrific nature of, you know, people on October 7th, Hamas terrorists videoing themselves committing not just war crimes, but some of the most despicable acts because they wanted it to be seen. It's the parallel bluntly of a lot of the um, mass murders today. Um, in the United States, they they want to they're not just doing the shooting with the um, gun. They're simultaneously, you know, shooting with the camera. Yeah. And I mean, uh, also, you know, sort of to draw on that and sort of tie it into the anger piece, you know, we mentioned that that idea of anger as tied to virality uh, and so on. And, and sometimes, you know, when I see some of the social media posts that are coming from pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinians, you know, it almost feels like that tweet, that Instagram message or that post is not only meant for their side, but it almost feels like it's meant to trigger the other side into voicing or uh, some of the most like terrible things. I mean, especially given that like I feel like a lot of social media accounts, you know, are from people I've never heard of. You know, it isn't like it's coming from like Abbas or Netanyahu or like, you know, these other political leaders we hear in the news. But it's coming from, you know, this average Joe who's on Twitter with a couple thousand followers. And then, you know, their messages or their tweets get like a million likes. And the anger is so, so there that you're starting to see, you know, almost like these genocidal, you know, not almost, I mean, genocidal messages that advocate for ethnic cleansing that are going viral, you know, across both the sides. But they're not coming from, you know, explicitly the government. They're coming from just these average folks, uh, often responding maybe to some post that the other side made, to some uh, crime that the other side committed. And now they're sort of almost putting out the worst former themselves, which is, you know, allowing the other side to then be like, oh, look at these guys, you know, they want to get rid of us all and so on. And uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, you know, as like, you know, one side releases a message meant to make the other side angry? Because I'm filled with emotion on this topic, I am realize that, you know, I'm being overly analytical and scientific to uh try and guard myself on it so um that's my uh uh caveat before i say this so there is a um the reason for this there's a there's a science behind it now whether the actors know the science of it um i can't say or not but they 
the science behind it is that um, it it's by design, um, by design in, in two ways. One, the platforms themselves, whether it's Twitter, whether it's you know Instagram, whatever, um, they derive value by virality, engagement time. Um, but, and so their algorithms, it's not just that, 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 that is put out. It is, you know, why do you see it? Why do you see it from people that you don't know? You see it because it's trending. It's pushed towards you by an algorithm, right? Um, but it's also by design of the actors themselves and the science behind it. Um, actually one of the, the, the seminal studies in the field, um, and Emerson and I talked about this in, in this, this article on Gaza, interesting enough is, um, it was a research study back in 2013, one of the biggest studies of social media, um, actually, uh, out of China. Um, and they studied the spread of over 70 million messages actually on, um, the Chinese social media platform, Weibo. Um, and the, the, the title of it says it all quote, anger is more influential than joy. And they basically were looking at the fact that, you know, across the 70 million content pool that, um, content that elicited anger was more likely to get an audience, not just in, you know, facts or reports, but even ones that elicited emotions like joy. Online, it was better to be angry than it was to be joyful if you wanted your message to go out there. And so um, then you hit that aspect of when you're exposed to something angry, you, I'm sorry, something that makes you angry, you, you want to release, you want to, you want to get it out but then you have that second part that you're bringing in is those knowing actors, whether it's, um, you know, combatants um, in the information war surrounding Gaza to what's the nature of an Internet troll. They do things, they post things knowing deliberately that they it will make people angry, knowing often that it's false. The whole goal is to get that anger, to get that response and then often to then play the victim of how, you know, you're angry. Why are you angry about it? I'm the victim here. Right. But the point is, um, yes, th this is none of this is, you know, occurring out of happenstance. It's occurring by design, both the design of the platforms themselves, but also by the design of the actors um, who are, you know, provoking this. And so that's, you know, again, um, you know, it, it, it's it's easy to say, but it's that and it's hard to do. It's that, you know, take that moment to try and understand why am I seeing this? Who is this actor that's posting it? Are they credible or not? What is their intent here? And then the action that I'm going to take, what what why am I doing it? What do I want to have happen next? Um, if you can answer that, maybe you still do that. Maybe you still provoke, you, you, you are provoked and you say that angry thing, or maybe you go, you know what, this is, this is the goal of that person. Um, I think what's frustrating is, um, not that, you know, regular folks are, um, being taken in by this. It's how many, um, figures, in our politics and media that are taken in by these actions still today. Um, and, you know, I'm going to make a sort of strange link, but it, but it is connected. I mean, this is where you see the link between 
um, information warfare tactics in Gaza and the culture war tactics in the United States and the link of, you know, the whole discourse over um, universities and, you know, what culminates in the resignation at Harvard and the like. Yeah, like how, how did this war, how did Hamas, you know, attacking Israel on October 7th, how has this conflict in Gaza somehow led to the president of Harvard resigning over plagiarism accusations? Like how? And the how, is, the, the how is the actors themselves were very open about it and said, this is my strategy. This is what I will be doing. And then they did it and um, and then literally wrote a Wall Street Journal article on I was successful about it. I mean, my point is just, again, um, you know, this goes back to uh, whether, you know, I mean, we we unfortunately you, you see certain players literally back to 2016, you know, being taken in again and again and again. Um, and it's like, you know, start to learn the the rules of the game here or you're going to be played. No, exactly. And I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about how social media, this messaging, this narrative setting, this weaponization of information has really drawn a lot of us audience in, you know, us commoners to an extent and made us sort of active participants in these conflicts. But I'm really curious on your take about how uh, governments and militant groups have used this information to boost their own morale, their own combatant morale, their own political morale, and also to denigrate, demoralize the other side's combatants, the other side's political morale, and so on. So um, it is part and parcel of uh, in almost every conflict now is um, they, every military has um, multiple not just units that are um, you know working in the realms of what we call information operations, psychological warfare, um, strategic communications, however you want to frame it. Um, but it also, just like you referenced, you know, it brings in um, there's the leaders, but there's the rest of us. It's the same thing. It involves you know individual soldiers. Um, and uh, we have seen um, the you know individual soldiers become um, not just you know, the the their own reporters we've seen individual soldiers terrorists etc become the equivalent of influencers you know with followings not just in the hundreds but the hundreds of thousands um what are the benefits uh you know why did they do it what one it's it, it is natural now for younger generations to broadcast out my life so if i do it in my personal life in my professional life you know should we be surprised it's happening here um, but what I'm getting in terms of the benefits, I, I think you hit them. You know, we we've seen examples that range from it's woven into recruiting, whether for a um, a state military or a terrorist group. This is why you should join. Um, you know, go back to I mean, you know, whether it's uh, Ukraine um, literally had. Um, the lines were so long of people volunteering that they couldn't take them in rapidly enough to, they were using the online world to um, pull in. uh, It was um, at least 15,000 foreign volunteers to, if you want to talk terrorist group, um, this, you know, ISIS, uh, an organization that um, used mostly the online world to persuade some 30,000 people from over 90 different countries to travel to Syria and Iraq, to join a group made up of people they'd never met before. Um, a different, uh, different, um, benefit might be, um, um, 
actual material, uh, whether it's, you know, the story of Ukraine and getting uh, massive amounts of foreign aid to individual units in Ukraine. Um, for example, there's a battalion where the battalion commander um, is very online and, and broadcasting out his unit successes and his unit has gotten, um, you know, aid via people providing donations, drones and flak vests and helmets. That's the exact same thing that groups ranging from Hezbollah to Hamas um, to the Houthis have done where it's, you know, you can donate to my group, right? Donate to my unit. Um, it might be, uh, you know, as you put it, there's that morale demoralization, raising our morale. These are the victories that we've had and or these are the martyrs on our side. This is why you should fight again. Um, you know, whether it's examples, we can find examples in Ukraine, examples in Gaza to um, the flip side, you know, uh, putting down the enemy. Um, and the reason to put down the enemy is not just to try and demoralize them. It's also to um, uh, kind of paint the story of um, why our um, victory is um, imminent um, uh, and or why giving up would be absurd. Uh, this is um, the Ukrainians, for example, have been very effective at this um, in the use of um, humor and um, like everything else uh, in the internet irony. So one of the things they did um, at the, uh, they posted um, uh, videos allowing Russian POWs um, to be able to um, contact their parents. Um, and on one hand, you can say, you know, you could frame it as like, well, that's humanitarian, you know, let your parents know that you've been captured. But it's also, you know, like everything else on the internet has kind of a double meaning, like the idea that we should surrender to these people that have to call their mommy, right? There's and so, yeah. And so again, you know, there, there's all of these different uses are um, happening. And they're happening again, you know, the main point is to understand there's a reason behind it. There's a goal, whether it's of that individual actor or that person that later on takes that video, takes that clip and uses it for some other purpose. Yeah, I mean, Peter, you know, you make a lot of uh, interesting uh, points. And, you know, I think one of my concerns is just, you know, the idea of, you know, radicalization, you know, across groups who are digesting all this information. Uh, but I mean, Peter, I mean, what does this mean for future war, I mean, for example, in the Indo-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific conflict, you know, if God forbid it happens, would involve two great powers and perhaps many other sort of significant military powers who are sort of fighting each other. I mean, what's your take on that? So the first um, related to China is, again, um, so much is out in the open. Um, and in fact, uh, two um, Chinese, uh, they're, they're both military officers, but professors at um, China's National Defense University actually published a article um, uh, in um, a PLA journal that you can access online. Um, uh, and they, they serve in the military propaganda teaching and research department, literally a department for it, right? Um, and they basically laid out what they have learned from watching all of these phenomena and therefore what the PLA should implement in um, what's described as 
cognitive warfare. Cognitive warfare is the idea of um, uh, winning not merely by, you know, killing the other side, but by affecting the mind, affecting um, what you understand and then the decisions that you think are possible or not, and then the decisions that you actually make or not. And um, they basically laid out in this article kind of a four-part strategy of what they've seen in the world. And essentially, you know, uh, they all of the elements that they see are notably playing out in Gaza, whether it's the things that we talk about, you know, that you and I were talking about in terms of um, emotional manipulation. They call it the translation is discourse competition um, to uh, trying to drive um, not just uh, um, certain um, push out certain narratives and, and, and catapult them into prominence. Um, uh, their language for it, they call it public opinion blockout, um, affecting, um, you know, creating falsehoods that go viral and um, winning uh, that uh, to even um, uh, what um, Israel has been able to achieve at certain moments in the Gaza conflict, which is um, uh, they, the, their term is block information. It's um, where you use uh, um, technical or kinetic physical means to to shut down the internet for periods of time um and israel's done that in a couple of the uh moments in gaza and and, and china's looking at that as well so again the the, the bottom and and guess what if if we were on a um pla podcast they would say oh yeah but you americans are talking about doing the same things and guess what you can also find discussion in our journal so um the intake from that is um one to your specific question uh yes um we're seeing that um happening um in preparation we're seeing an execution um you know all the a massive amounts of targeting of the taiwanese election and the like and that if there ever was uh, a larger war um, in not just in, in the Pacific, but really in war writ large, um, you will see that same phenomena that's playing out, you know, coming from Ukraine or coming from Gaza. It's the notion of the digital and the physical battlefield coming together. It's the notion of a globe spanning information conflict that even if the fighting is in one place, even as physically small as Gaza, it still will wrap around the world and the information part and that the conflict will be one that is really about our own likes and shares and understanding and then actions. Yeah. And, and my last question, because this ties in very well uh, with what you're currently doing at Useful Fiction. I think you've been talking to a lot of, you know, defense folks trying to use narrative to explain future warfare. Could you just briefly elaborate on that uh, before we close? Because I think it's a lot of interesting work that you're doing. I, I appreciate that. So what Useful Fiction is, is basically the idea of bringing together nonfiction research and analysis with um, the oldest communication technology of all story or narrative. A uh, different way of thinking about it is um, if a strategy paper, a white paper, a briefing, an academic journal, it's like kale, it's good for you, but you know it's hard to get people to consume it. 
At the other end of the spectrum, there's a milkshake. Um, uh, you love it, um, but it's not good for you. Well, there's that thing in the middle called a smoothie. That's what um, we uh, work on. And we've worked with um, not just military, but governments, technology companies. Essentially, it, it's taking um, nonfiction uh, um, something that's important and trying to wrap it within a story, a scenario. What might this future look like if X happened? Or what might it look like if, if it didn't happen? Um, or uh, as opposed to explaining um, how does this technology work through you know a 15-page brief, let's give you a sense of how this technology works um, in a daily life or in a battle or in the, in the grocery store. Um, it's been, uh, uh, an exciting project, um, uh, that, you know, it brings in, I think, you know, some of the lessons that we've talked about here, but tries to deploy them, uh, and, and the service of understanding. For sure. On that note, Peter, thank you so much for joining me here today uh, for our audience, or we're going to have some links to Peter's work, including a great article he recently wrote, uh, on sort of that digital battlefield, uh, in Israel, Gaza, in that conflict, we'll have a link to useful fiction as well. Uh, and links to more things. But uh, Peter, you know, thanks so much for joining me here. This has been a very engrossing uh, conversation. Thank you so much for having me.